I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. On this week's episode, I'm speaking with Sydney Goss, an interdisciplinary artist and adjunct professor in sculpture at Alfred University. Sydney works with an array of materials that she uses in her sculpture installation and fiber-based practice. She uses her work as a means to respond to issues between power structures and gender inequality. Working with text and gendered iconography, Gauze exposes her oppressive truths and begins to challenge the viewer's conditioned constructs of both a woman's role in society and in the home. Hello, Sydney. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Hi. Thank you. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background, where you're from, and how you began working with textiles and as an interdisciplinary artist? Yeah, sure. So my name is Sydney, and um, let's see. I was born in central Florida in a small town called Leesburg, um, raised in Gainesville, Florida, until I was about 12 years old. Um, and my, my stepfather... Um, is a dentist and his practice relocated to Tennessee. And so probably mid middle school, we moved up to Brentwood, Tennessee, um, a small suburb to Nashville. And I lived there until I was 26, went to high school and undergrad there, and then um, moved to Alfred, New York, where I'm currently based and pursued my MFA in sculpture and dimensional study uh, at Alfred University. And I have been teaching here for the past two years as an adjunct professor within the sculpture division. I've also taught within art history and the foundations division here. Um, so that's a little bit about like my, my background in terms of uh, geography and um, in looking at you know where I began working with with textiles, I would say this is something that's been ingrained in my my life since I was a very very young girl. Um, my mother was a single mom, and I was raised by my my grandmother for my early early years and my great grandmother, and was lucky enough to to experience my great grandmother. Um, up until my my mid twenties, um, both both of these women were in love with textiles, in love with fiber. My great grandmother was felting hats. Um, you know, when she was like twenty years old, um, mm. she she lost her her mother when she was a child, and so um, being that young and a woman in her family, she was expected to sew all of her clothes for her for siblings and and for herself and so she was <clears throat> quilting uh, knitting felting at such a young age and continued this practice her entire life which then she taught to my grandmother um, who is also a, a really big knitter and a quilter as well and then this these practices were then taught to my mother. Um, and so my mother is an art quilter and um, a dyer as well. And then it was passed along to me. So, um, <laughs> you know, we we are a self-taught fiber-based family. We've learned from other women 
uh, we've learned from ourselves. And, uh, you know, for the longest time, I kind of rejected these practices, especially in undergrad, because I, I saw them as something that was expected of me because of my, because of my, uh, you know, assigned gender. And, um, I, I fought them a little bit. I, I wanted to be, you know, using power tools. I wanted to be in the metal shop and the, and the wood shop, uh, kind of challenging these, uh, gender stereotypes and roles. And so, um, in, in looking at my time in graduate school, I did a lot of digging and trying to figure, figure out myself and who I was and who I came from. And that led me back to my mother, my grandmother, my great grandmother. And I, and I started to, to see the love of fiber again. Um, and so that is, that is where it all began. And that is where I am now currently. <clears throat> mm. And would you say that the fiber pieces that you create now, the skills that you've picked up, did it come from learning from your mother and grandparents or did you end up changing your direction while you were studying in school? Absolutely. It came from my family. Um, growing up, I was asked to, uh, well, not really asked, but my, my mom signed me up for sewing camps, and so I would go to these camps and learn how to sew a garment, um, usually like a one-week camp. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and those those were a little bit different than, than what my uh, family had kind of learned. They, they were more quilt-based, um, knitting-based, and then I was kind of pushed into this like garment study. Um, and I, and I loved it, uh, when I was a young girl and there were fashion shows and it was great. Um, and so when I started to get back into textiles in my graduate, um, experience, it was, it was kind of, um, adopting those practices again, coming from garment construction and quilting. Um, and then I would say in the past two years, I started to get into felting which is something that uh, my mom has been doing. And so she, she taught this practice to me. And, and I started to use it as not as like a craft study per se, but um, looking at it through a very contemporary lens, wondering how dimensional felting could play a role in, in, in sculpture. Um, <clears throat> and I would say that that was something that was was a curiosity to me and when i when i started felting these these t-shirts um one of one of the pieces that um is in my work it's titled grandmother it's two dimensional felted white shirts that stand side by side in the gallery and and this piece was me searching for that connection with my great grandmother um who mm. who was felting her hats when she was uh you know in the 19 30s, 1940s, um, and that was that was really important for me, especially since she passed away, you know, ten years ago. Um, was about connecting with her again, um, and then you know, with this title, grandmother, thinking of it as a little bit more fluid, um, and not just you know being specific with my great grandmother, but it being a little bit more broad. 
um, for both myself and the viewer. Hmm. That's really beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> As an interdisciplinary artist, how would you describe your practice? Like, what are some of the ways that your research and inspiration lives specifically in your textile pieces? So I would describe my art practice as um, a way of searching through ideas. Um, I'm usually interested in a material first, um, and then I, I sit with this material. I try to learn its social context, historical context, um, political context, and, and see where I can kind of push it. Um, and then other times, it's the opposite. I get an idea first, and then I start searching for, for materials that, that fit this idea. Um, and so talking about like an interdisciplinary practice, sometimes it isn't just the object itself. Sometimes I need to kind of think about video or sound. And that's also some things that I've incorporated with, with my work and my practice. Light as well. Light is such an important role in how viewers can perceive a piece and be moved by a piece. It, it's an energy that kind of uh, commands the space and room, um, as well as that that sound component. And so, uh, when I when I am thinking about concept and the way I want to articulate these ideas to an audience, I think about the role of of every material. Um, and smell being one of those. And, and, you know, right now I've been working with a lot of food waste um, and dried fruits and stuff. And so how can those uh, bring out certain senses in the viewer um, to get them to that place where, I, where I'd like them to be? Um, and so I, I am really excited about being an interdisciplinary maker and worker and thinker because I'm not just stuck on, on one one thing, um, and, and look at the, the broad scope of, of materials. And that's also something that I, that I teach to my students. It's really, really important to my practice. Uh, I think it also allows for conversation to happen between uh, multiple disciplines, and you learn from other individuals who may specialize in a certain material. Um, and, and social practice also being a, a form of material and, and getting out into the community is really, really important for me as well. Um, I would say in, in terms of that, living in my textile pieces, um, you know, I've obviously learned from, you know, the women in my family, but I've also branched out to other women um, around uh, New York State, um, Going back to Brentwood, Tennessee, I've learned from a woman who owns an alpaca farm how to dye with indigo. Mm. Um, I, I learned from uh, a man in Ithaca how to dye with cochineal, um, who's native to Mexico and actually buy, or grows and harvests his own cochineal there. Um, and that really authentic experience for me was, it was important, especially in learning um, a dye practice that has been exploited and abused. Um, and so having that, having that moment with him and, and really learning the, the history behind something like cochineal was, uh, was important for, for me as, as a maker and for me as, as a white woman, um, to, to have that, 
honest, raw experience was heartwarming and genuine. Um, and so I would say that that's, that's kind of how this interdisciplinary practice lives in the textile works is, is me branching out to other communities and people who can, who can share their knowledge with me and, and, and vice versa. Hmm. And I saw that over the past year, you began working with natural dyes as you were just expressing. Can you talk about what inspired you to start working in that way? And maybe some of the materials you've experimented with and your findings? Yeah. So in graduate school, you know, I went from this space where I was working with like really artificial materials, really new materials. And I was running into this, uh, you know, like wall basically where where all of this newness wasn't wasn't articulating what I wanted it to um, and I found that I needed to be looking at the poetics of, of materials and you know I was so attracted to like the new qualities of uh, you know paint being something that was new uh, if, if I just painted a surface and then that that was it um, what happens if I paint a surface and then I rub it with my hand over and over and over and you have this residue of, of the, the human touch? All of a sudden that created another level of, of poetry within my work. Um, another endpoint for the viewer to kind of enter the piece. And, and this element of history was, was something that I had been lacking up until this point. And so... I was on Instagram and I think I had just saw something someone had died with avocado pits mm. and and showed like this this beautiful blush pink uh, swatch and was like I got this from avocado pits and I, to me that was that extra layer of history. I was blown away with the fact that you could get a pink from an avocado pit and an avocado skin and then immediately was just researching and and, and looking into this even more because, you know, my mom had always died with, you know, jacquard dyes and acid dyes. And, and to think about natural dyeing to me um, introduced a whole nother level of history, storytelling. Um, and it is, it is wide and deep when it comes to uh, the, the natural dyeing. Um, and so I just started exploring my first uh, dye bath was avocado skins and pits. Um, and then that led me to, uh, onion skins and then, uh, an array of other dyes came after this and it, I became obsessed. Um, and so I would say that, you know, after, after I started a couple of the dye baths, it was, it was about, okay, what can I get from this color? What can I get from this color? And, uh, I ordered a couple books. I started um, taking classes, and it was kind of nonstop from there. Um, and then, and then teaching some of these natural dyes became uh, an important part of of my my teaching practice as well. Mm. Hearing you talk about experimenting with onion skeins, I'm sorry. <laughs> Schemes. <laughs> Hearing you talk about have yarn on the brain. <laughs> yeah, right. 
hearing you talk about dying with onion skins and avocado pits reminds me of a piece of yours that I really admire and I'm interested in hearing more about Mother's Hand. Can you talk about what that piece was composed of and what was the meaning behind it? Yeah, so that piece is three different materials. Um, It is silk ribbon that has been knitted using my arms. And it is a deconstructed garment, a silk garment that was um, dyed with the onion skins. And that is pinned to the to the silk um, ribbon with a, with a pearl pin. Um, and so with this piece, I, I saw that someone had been uh, knitting using their arms. And so I went home for my break and um, I, I looked at my mom and I said, mom, you know that I've, I've never really been interested in knitting. Um, can you help me knit with my arms? And so we got out this this skein of the the silk ribbon, and she she kind of acted like a spindle in the moment, and it was uh, almost like a bobbin. She's holding the the ball of silk ribbon, and I, I'm I'm knitting with my arms, and it became this very performative act actually, and I almost think the the performative part of it was more interesting than the final work itself, um, uh, but. That, that was what this piece was all about, was that exchange of, of motions with my mother. Um, and then pinning the, the silk garment that had been dyed with, with onion skins, I, was, I actually obtained this garment when I was back in Florida with my grandmother and my mom. And I was searching for silks, silk garments at thrift stores that I could experiment with, you know, because we're artists and we're always on a budget. So I wanted to find (laughs) something that was accessible and cheap. And so I started to deconstruct this, this blouse, this silk blouse, and I dyed with it and was able to get a color that was similar to the silk ribbon that I was uh, knitting with. And um, what was so interesting about this garment is that when I dyed with it, obviously it was a used blouse and there had been sweat stains um, on the blouse and the dye reacted with that sweat stain and you could see the residue of of the person who wore it previously. Um, Mm. And I actually thought that that was a a very beautiful thing. Um, And so as I, as I'm knitting with my mom and I'm looking at this silk garment that that I had dyed to see all the layers of, of touch and human in this work, um, became really important to me. And so that's why I, I envisioned seeing them together. And, you know, the the blouse is, is pinned to that silk knitted ribbon with, with this little pearl pin, which is something that um, I always grew up around, you know, pins like this. Um, and so that is what that piece was inspired by. And eventually my silk ribbon ran out and I, and I couldn't knit anymore. And um, the piece is actually, you see the end of that strand come down to the floor. Um, and the whole piece is suspended in the space, in the gallery space. And so seeing that ribbon reach down to the floor was an important element for me too, because I wanted it to, to seem like the piece could keep going, the conversation could keep going. 
so that is what that piece was inspired by. So one of the things that really intrigued me about your work was the reoccurring themes that I could see. You investigate the difference between cultural expectations and identity through the gaze of being from the American South. Can you talk about what that means and how those themes inform the aesthetics in your work? Absolutely. Um, So, like I said earlier, graduate school was, you know, I'm going to keep bringing it up because it was the most important two years of my life. I really started to investigate who I am. And I know that a lot of people start to think about that question, you know, as they get older and things happen, like, who who am I? And I started to, to trace back to my roots, to trace back to Florida, where I was born, what that what that city was like historically, what, where, where did I come from? And, uh, you know, I, I've talked about the women in my family a lot. I haven't really talked about uh, the men in my family. And that there's a reason why. Uh, you know, my, my real father lives in Florida, and um, I, I grew up in a very misogynistic household when I wasn't with my my mother um when i was visiting my father um it was a very difficult relationship between him and and so looking at this question of who am i i i was forced to look at who who have i come from and i was investigating the relationship with my father and the hurdles that we've overcome and maybe the, the hurdles that we haven't overcome as well. And, and thinking about that bigger question that I had, I, I had to think about the two people that I came from and, and what their background and histories were like. And so in thinking about um, these, these cultural expectations that, that I mention in my in my statement, in my bio, and almost everything. When I say that, I'm referencing my experiences with a Southern Baptist upbringing, and this wasn't by my mom, this was by, by my father, and and what that meant to me as, as a child, and I was expected to, to go to church every Sunday. I was expected to be this this little girl who was submissive and who didn't ask questions and uh, who was scared and so a lot of a lot of my childhood was this um, very like forced religious practice um, by my father. Would you say that this experience is kind of the voice that you were speaking from in pieces like it starts in the home and if father could pick my veil. Absolutely. Mm. Um, it starts in the home is, is a white picket fence. Um, and it's, it's actually layered white picket fences that have been constructed using wood. Um, and there's, there's layers that go wide in this piece. And so, um, I, I constructed probably, I don't know, maybe 
70 feet worth of, worth of white picket fence. And in thinking about the picket fence, I was thinking about the American dream and like the ideal American household, whatever that may mean um, in quotes. And, and to me, that was like my, the epitome of my father and what my father wanted of, of his family, wanted of us, and was this kind of like fakeness. And so I, I made all of these white picket fences. I painted them um, over and over so you could see the layers of paint, similar to, to how you would actually see a white picket fence um, kind of being painted every year to have that, that newness and that um, everything is great in this house kind of aesthetic. And on the other side of the white picket fence, I completely torched it. Uh, I torched it with a with a fluffy torch in the glass shop here at Alfred University, and uh, I burned it as much as I could, and that to me was the back and forth arguments, the back and forth fights, um, the harsh words that have been thrown in fights by my father and I. And it was this constant back and forth. So you've got one side of the fence that's white and beautiful, um, in quotes again. And then you have the other side of the fence that's, that's been torched. And that to me was kind of like the, the epitome of, of my childhood was that constant back and forth. And this is something that I'm very transparent about. And um, I think it's important because I know that I'm not the only person who has a difficult relationship with a family member. So... Um, I'm, I'm very, very open with this. Um, and so in looking at the piece, if, if dad could pick my veil, um, when I had my first period, um, I was given a promise ring by my father. It was a diamond ring. And he said, you're, you're a woman now. Um, and so you have to make a promise to me and the Lord to, um, abstain of having any sexual, thoughts or desires or actions until you're to be married. And so going back to identity and cultural expectations, um, this veil was the symbol of, of virginity or um, the role that I was expected to take as, as a housewife and, and this kind of modest life practice. And so the veil itself is, is quilted of an array of fibers, um, raw silk, cotton, linen. Um, I purchased some antique lace and, and laced or added lace to the trim of the veil um, to have that, that old aesthetic too. And I wanted this piece to not just be about me, but all women. And so it was really important for me to have that... Um, that layeredness that I'm talking about, something that each each woman can kind of uh, reference when they look at the piece. And the, the really important part of that piece is that there's this steel armature that runs throughout it, and it holds the piece up by itself um, and looks like a figure is wearing the veil. But once you kind of make your way around the piece, the, the, the figure is absent. And that was my that was kind of like my my political stance on on this piece altogether was that I am choosing to be absent from from this veil. I used a I used a fabric stiffener, so the veil actually 
um, was kind of cast on my own head. It's the height of me. Um, it has it has shoulders, um, and those shoulders are the height of my own. And so, um, looking back at my thesis images, and I, I'm taking a picture where I'm standing next to the veil, um, and that that was a really poetic moment for me in my life is is thinking about the fact that I, I stepped out of that um, and then decided to make work about it. Hmm. It's really great to hear you describe the piece because looking at it, I definitely had a very visceral reaction to it, but hearing more about where it comes from really places the pieces in a context that helps uh, me to understand them a lot more. And I'll definitely make sure that we include images of these works so that listeners can also see the pieces that you're talking about. Another piece that I'm really interested in is A Past Tied to a Dark History, a 19th century grain cradle and felted sheep wool. Can you talk about the materials you used and what that piece represents? Yeah, so um, the materials used are, are two different materials. It's the found 19th century grain cradle. Um, which is a very, very interesting object, just visually, and then a more interesting object historically. Um, and then the second material was felted sheep's wool. Uh, and I used about three different types of wool in that. I used a, like a bubblegum pink wool and then two different white uh, wools. Um, just in terms of, of getting the color that I wanted, but also um, the shrinkage rate on that was very, very important because I, I was felting this wooden object, um, which was a very arduous process. It took about uh, three days, and I had eight-hour shifts of, of just felting this this object. Um, hmm. And so <laughs> this, this piece is complicated for me um, and still is. I made it about a year ago year and a half ago, and it's still complicated. Um, and it's a piece that I revisit daily. Um, so I talked previously about going to antique shops, and that's like a place where I find the, the lace and embroidery hoops and, and old objects that, that make me think about my upbringing. And when I've stumbled upon this, this thing, um, I was taken aback. I had no idea what it did. It, it kind of looks like this wooden claw, um, but it's like five feet long, four feet tall. It's, it's giant. Um, mm. And it's got this giant rusty blade that, that penetrates out of one side. So there's kind of like this aggressive nature about this, this thing. So when I, when I saw it, I was obviously attracted to, you know, the, the way that this thing had been constructed, it's handmade, um, and then what it did and what it looked like to me, it looked like this giant hand um, with with this blade. And so with this piece, I started to think about the agricultural uses of the object. Um, I was I did a lot of researching and found that this this thing is actually like a collector's item now. To find it intact like this was really rare, um, and looking at how it was used, uh, 
I really couldn't find a lot of information other than the fact that it's got a handle and you sift it into into wheat. It's actually used to harvest wheat. Um, and it the the fingers, I'm just going to keep referring to it as a claw and a hand, but the, the fingers of this thing kind of brush the wheat and then there's a handle with a blade and then that cuts the wheat and then it lays down on this hand and then you're able to harvest it. But... I found that this piece was used in the Midwest and in the South for, for wheat harvesting. And I also found that there's a really dark history attached to it um, in terms of slave labor. And uh, that to me was a moment that I had to sit with and acknowledge and also acknowledge it as, you know, as a part of, of me and my background and, and being a woman and a white woman in the South and knowing that that's a part of my history inherently. Um, and so looking at this, at this piece, all of a sudden it became this very hard object um, and an oppressive object. And I, I sat with it. I sat with the, the rusted blade that it had. I, I sat with um, the fact that it was used by all types of men. There were three, there were three uh, names that were etched into the wood of this object, and I had no idea who they were. I looked them up and um, couldn't find any information, but I was kind of faced with the difficult uh, and very raw histories that were attached to this thing. Mm. And so in, in that moment, I wanted, I wanted to understand it more and search this thing more and so I just had this idea that I'm gonna I'm gonna felt it I'm gonna try to make this thing soft um and 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 to think about this idea of like softening an impressive object for me was important in that moment and it's it's a really difficult thing to talk about to be honest like um the fact that I was so drawn to this thing had no idea what it meant all of a sudden started doing this research and finding what it meant and finding the tr the truth in that and then literally felting it for 24 hours and and feeling this and being connected to that past and history um and then it, it becomes this kind of soft uh thing and it's a difficult piece um you know i i will totally acknowledge that and um I learned a lot through the process. Again, that going back to like the performative aspects of making, to me the the fact that I was just felting it for 24 hours and thinking about everything. Um to me that was the work. Um and so that that is the that is a story behind um that piece. You know, I think it was like a year and a half ago I was really interested in, in these all these antique objects and then I started to look at antique agricultural objects um, and that was that was the first moment was with that grain cradle um, mm. and and again going back to my identity that was something that I needed to face and I thought it was really that was an important piece for me um, there was a lot of learning that happened with it um, and so um, that, is, that is my honest truth with that one.
Yeah, and I, I, I see in the title a past tied to a dark history how that all kind of plays into each other. So as an artist, it's often really difficult to sustain. What have been some of the challenges, if any, starting and maintaining your practice? I feel like my practice is ever evolving. You know, like I, I'm constantly searching um, to to learn myself, to learn who I came from, and to learn different processes and practices, um, and then learning how to be a better human. And and so those those things don't really require um, a studio at times. And I think the one thing that I've learned, and I, I bet most of us have learned during lockdown and during a pandemic, is that you know, we, we do require studios for certain practices and processes, but we can make a lot of things at home. And so in thinking about um, some of the difficulties of, of sustaining a practice is, is that point exactly is sometimes not having access to certain tools, machinery, um, and different ways of making, um, you know, one in particular, I would say would be, you know, welding. A lot of my pieces do kind of um, have like a steel armature of sorts. Um, I do metal casting as well. Not as much as I'd like, but um, those are really heavy studio processes. Um, And so one thing that I've been learning while I've been home is just kind of trying to reconnect with my roots and, um, sewing at a kitchen table and how important that is. And uh, so that's that's been something that I've been doing. Um, I've also not had a studio for the past year, and so I've been this kind of a squirrel, I would say. Like, I make something, and then I go hide it in a corner, and then, and then I go back to it later. And so um, that's been the one, of, one of the difficult things. But as of right now, I've been doing some eco-dyeing at home, um, I've been teaching eco-dyeing from home. I've been collecting flowers outside. I've been drying fruits in my kitchen, in my oven. I've been learning how to make biscuits from scratch. <laughs> oh, wow. And, like, looking at biscuits as a material, looking at um, foods that I grew up with, like grits as as a material, Um and so I would say that um, th- those have probably been some of the challenges in, in terms of just, you know, not having access to certain shops and to a storage-based studio. Um, but in terms of, of maintaining a practice, it's been really important for me to just keep going. And, and like I said, learning those different, like, okay, I, I'm not in a, you know, a plaster making studio right now. So what can I make at home that's similar to plaster consistency? Oh, okay, I'm going to make dough. Um, and, and then, you know, go from there. Uh, my, my partner's been making pita at, at home, homemade pita. And so we've both been kind of tending to yeast and flour and, um, Mm. and, you know, wait times with that and growing times with that, similar to how you would wait in any of those studios for something to dry or process. Um, and so that would be how I would say that I've been maintaining uh, my curiosities. That sounds amazing. <laughs> 
especially making homemade biscuits. <laughs> I've definitely been doing a lot more cooking. <laughs> and where can people go on social media and the internet to support your work? Um, right now, my, my website's in a little bit of flux, but um, my website is Sydney Gauze at Squarespace, but that link is found in my bio on my Instagram account, which is my, my name, Sydney underscore Goss. Um, and I'm sure you can find the spelling where this will be linked for, for that. But that's where you can find me. That's where you can follow me um, and learn a little bit more about the works that we've discussed and, and, and who I am. Amazing. It's been great listening to you talk about your work and explain all of the deep interpersonal connections that you have with it. I really appreciate how open you've been and uh, transparent you've been with talking to us and sharing your story. We have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Yeah, I would say to keep to keep going. That that would be my advice. And I know that that's probably like a cop out answer. <laughs> um like I you know, when talking about the eco dying and natural dying, every single time you do something, you're going to answer a question and then you're going to have another question that that comes up. And and always answer that next question. And sometimes questions can't be answered, but but keep pushing yourself to find out more because each time you take that that next step, you will learn something else. Um, and and sometimes it doesn't always have to be the things that you've been taught. You can step outside of that and you can learn um, different ways of weaving, different ways of of dying. You know, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is. You know, there's this whole process of of, of natural dyeing um, and all these steps that you have to take to have this successful product. But there are successful products that you can make that don't have to fall into the constructed process that you've been trying to perfect. It can be an accident that's a success. It can be that you take flowers and you start rubbing them on fabric to stain it. And that can be a success within and of itself because you've you've taken this moment where you've collected something, you've done something with it, and then you have this outcome. And there's a story within that. Um, and so that would be my advice is to keep keep going and to keep asking questions. Um, and, and above all, respect the processes and respect the histories that are that are attached with all of these processes because that is that is really really important in in learning new things is also learning where they came from and and who they came from as well so um thank you so much for having me i really have appreciated this conversation and and i hope that um people learn something and enjoy this this conversation with you absolutely thank you so much that's a wrap if you're interested in supporting sydney's work you can find links to her website in the show notes at www.jisyarn.com slash episode dash 121.
On next week's episode, I'm really excited to speak with Kenya Miles, the artist, farmer, and alchemist behind the Traveling Miles Studio. Kenya has a wealth of knowledge and expertise in natural textiles, which she has applied to the Blue Light Junction Project, which is a natural dye studio, alternative color lab, retail space, dye garden, and educational facility located in central Baltimore. I'm excited to bring that conversation to you all next week. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving. Happy weaving.